The reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8. Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they couldn't get to him because of the crowd. Someone told Jesus, your mother and your brothers are standing outside and they want to see you. Jesus replied, my mother and my brothers are all those who hear God's word and obey it. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So friends, I don't know if it was on the screen, but if you had children that were going to go to children's ministry, they are welcome to go. Uh, and they're also welcome to stay here. Your children are welcome to stay here. If they get loud, that's okay. I will get louder. So uh, I, I, I need to just say as I start this that I did not, in, I, I promise you, I did not plan for that scripture passage to be the Mother's Day text, okay? Um, I plan out my sermons for a full year, and I put them on this spreadsheet, and I do not look at the holidays other than Easter. I look at Easter, and if there's any text that's about resurrection, I will try to get it so that we can stay within the series and then also, you know, talk about resurrection. So I did not have planned to talk about Jesus's relationship to his mother and his brothers and his siblings on Mother's Day. Um, that said, I need to just warn you, this is either going to be the best Mother's Day sermon you have ever heard, or depending on your perspective, it could be the absolute worst Mother's Day sermon you've ever heard. So I just, I want to give that nice little trigger warning, okay? Uh, Recently, about a, a month ago, in fact, I officiated the funeral of a woman who helped raise me. I drove all the way back to Missouri. Uh, Joanne Perry died at 71 years old. I'm sorry, am I? There it is. Uh, died at 71 years old of cancer. And I went back, and I've known her. She literally came and visited my mother in the hospital uh, as my mother was having me, and Joanne would tell this story later, and it would always make me feel weird inside. You know how, like, when people would talk about you when you're a baby, and, like, you, you can't do anything about it? And she would just be like, I, I stood outside in the waiting room, and I just kept praying to God, God, make sure that kid doesn't have a cone head. And then when he came out and he was born, he just had this big old cone head. It would just always make me feel weird. But I don't have a cone head anymore, I don't think. Uh, anyway, I, I have known her my whole life. And so when her sons asked me if I would officiate the funeral, of course, I was more than happy to do it. Um, but I also knew immediately what the theme was that I was going to go with. And the theme was family of choice. The language of family of choice or chosen family, thank you, the language of family of choice or chosen family comes out of the LGBT community in the 1970s and the 1980s. Uh, queer communities were largely, when they would come out to their families, they would be rejected by their families, and so they made family of choice by making family of each other or family of people who did not share their biology or their DNA. I wanted to talk about family of choice with Joanne because, uh, there we go, uh, because I grew up in a very unstable home. I grew up in a home with looming poverty and the perpetual threat of abuse, which meant that 
anytime I would go somewhere where the dominant sort of feeling was white middle class experience, I always felt like a foreigner and an outsider to it. I never felt like I belonged, I never felt like I had the clothing to wear, I never felt like I had the manners to be there, I did not know the rituals or the customs of middle-class white America, but I never felt like I didn't belong when I was at Joanne's house. I was not her biological son, but she treated me as if I was her biological son. She made me her family, she made my siblings her family, and she made my parents her family. She was a mother to me. I like the way Katie said it. Uh, you may not be a mother, but maybe you're mothering someone. I never thought about why she was so good at making family of choice of people. But when I interviewed her boys for the funeral to get more stories about her life than I had known, I learned that when she was two years old, her father died. And a few years later, when she was still pre-kindergarten, her mother became engaged to and eventually married a man who would raise her as if she was his own daughter. And she would always say that he was very clear from the time that he was involved with my mother and that they were married that I was his daughter. And that there was no question ever in my mind that I belonged to him. And so from her earliest memory, she has this sort of uh, ongoing story of belonging as family with somebody who doesn't share any of her DNA. And so why did she choose me? And why did she choose my siblings? And why did she choose my parents? I think she did what came natural to her, something that she had always known. She made family of choice. We have talked before, briefly, about how in Luke's gospel particularly, but really all the gospels when you're paying attention, that in Luke's gospel, Jesus is very keen to make biological family uh, or rather, to make family out of people who are not biological family. To replace the biological family with a family of choice. And we see it again today in this Mother's Day text. We see it again today because here Jesus is in this house. His ministry is so popular that the crowds are filling up the house so that when his mother and his brothers show up to talk to him, they can't get in because the crowd is so large around the house. And so they send a messenger into the house and they say, hey, tell him that your mother and your brothers are here, which is a cue, right? The people of priority in your life have arrived. Whatever it is that you're doing with these other people, someone more important has shown up and you owe to them your obligations, your, your attention, And Jesus responds, once you start to seeing it, once you start seeing it, Jesus responds in the Jesus-esty way. <laughs> I just invented a word. He responds in the spiciest way. 
He says that his real family are those who hear the word of God and obey the will of God. Now listen, this is, this is a story that maybe in your devotional time or something, I, I wonder if you've ever heard a sermon on it. Because when you sit with this and you think about, Luke told us in chapter 1, Luke told us that there were any number of stories that he could have chosen. He did all this research into the life of Jesus. Any number of stories that he could have chosen to tell, and yet he selected particular stories to tell. Why tell this story? When you read it with Luke has intention to what he's doing... You have to sit with this story and say, why this story? Because it's so weird. Especially because for ancient Jews, saying that your family is not biology, but your family is family of choice, is not only spicy or edgy, it's downright insulting. Or to say, as uh, the Gospel of John will say, that... uh, uh, for, for a people who, uh, the ancient Jews, who define themselves by their ethnic relation to each other and their ethnic descendancy from Abraham, for a people who that is the fundamental of your identity, the, the fundamental element of your identity, to tell those people that God can raise up stones to be children of Abraham is not merely spicy or edgy, it is downright insulting. So set within a first century context, this is an incredibly problematic passage. Because what ends up happening is if you take this text seriously, and there are others like it, stories like this undermine the centrality of the biological family for Christians. Undermine the centrality of our commitments to our ethnic group. Gonna say that again, white folks. They undermine our priority to biological family and people who look like us, whoever us is. What makes us family? What makes us belong to each other is not shared DNA, it is not shared skin color, it is not shared voting habits, it is not shared flag that we fly. It is hearing God's voice and obeying God's will. That's what Jesus says. And listen, that kind of edgy, spicy, insulting kind of feeling that would have been present in the New Testament day, it, would, it is still present to us today. This, this is why it felt awkward for me to preach a sermon like this on Mother's Day, right? Because this is supposed to be centrally about the person that we share half of our DNA with. But one of the reasons why passages like this insult our church church universal and insult our society, sound insulting to our society, is frankly, I think, 
Because the American church, particularly in its white forms, have asked the biological family and mothers in particular to carry weight that God never intended us to carry. We have asked of the biological family, of the nuclear family, we have asked of mothers to carry the weight of a nation, and God has never placed that weight on us. We have all heard the rhetoric that the family is the cornerstone of society. Or that so-and-so over here, or immigrants over here, or queer folks over here are destroying the American family. They're a threat to the American family. And the assumption is, is that the church is supposed to be the institution that helps prop up the family. That in fact, God created the family before God created the church. And that gives priority to the family even above the church. That God created the church or the, fam or the family before God created the state. And that means that you should have allegiance to your family even above the state. But this is a highly selective and highly idolatrous reading of the Bible. Yale New Testament scholar Dale Martin says that Jesus' words here feel insulting to us because we have made family an idol. He says, contemporary Christianity in the United States, whether Protestant or Catholic, liberal or conservative, I like how he just throws everybody under the bus. Contemporary Christianity in the United States, whether Protestant or Catholic, liberal or conservative, has so closely aligned the basic message of Christianity with family and traditional family values that it is currently in a state of idolatry. Why? Because the religious term for, for the identification of anything but God at the center of the Christian faith is idolatry. And the idolatry of contemporary American Christianity is the familiar idolatry of the church's current focus on the family. And focusing on the family disregards everything. Everything that we have covered the last few weeks in the Gospel of Luke. Remember last week that Jesus told us of three named women who were with Jesus as disciples. Mary of Magdala, Joanna, the wife of Herod's business administrator, and Susanna. Three named women last week. Now, here's what I want you to understand, because if this is scandalous to us, it would be even more scandalous to the first century Jewish patriarchal world. Jesus spends three years of his life as a single man traveling around with other single men, traveling around with single women, none of whom are dating each other, engaged to each other, are married to each other, or have children with each other. 
Anybody know the Billy Graham rule? Billy Graham rule that a man should not be alone with a woman who is not his spouse, right? Jesus is out here breaking the Billy Graham rule every day. It amazes me in 70 years of the Billy Graham rule being around that no one went over to Billy and was like, hey, bro, um, you know that Jesus guy you talk about every week? He breaks your rule every day. And there are all kinds of massive social implications for the Billy Graham rule that are entirely problematic, particularly keeping women out of positions of power that I could go into, but that's not what this sermon is. So I'm going to reserve the right to use the Billy Graham rule as an illustration later, okay? Here's the point. The Billy Graham rule would tell us that it is unseemly for women to be alone with men, but even more so when those women are single, as Mary and Susanna seem to be, or when those women have left their husbands, as apparently Joanna seems to have done. Jesus breaks the Billy Graham rule by walking around with these women. And if this is an offense to us, it is a minimal offense next to the first century Jewish offense, where it is assumed that the role of a woman is to be married and to become mothers. And this is where either, depending on your perspective, this is gonna be the greatest sermon you've ever heard, the greatest Mother's Day sermon, or you're gonna find this incredibly liberating, and I hope it's the latter. What Jesus is going to do in this scenario is to free women's identities from being something other than merely belonging to men. In a society where women's identities are, I am the daughter of this man, or the sister of this man, or the wife of this man, or the mother of this man, Jesus is going to re, uh, re Jesus is going to turn over all the seats of gender power. But in the meantime, before we even get to the implications of that, you have to understand that not only would this be a sexual scandal for Jesus to be walking around with these women, but that especially so because these women are single and he has no intention of marrying them or having children with them. Again, Dale Martin, all of our gospels present Jesus as creating and living within an alternative to the household. A traveling group of men and women unrelated to one another by blood. Every time I read that phrase, I think that they're like traveling around in a circus with big tents. A group of men and women traveling unrelated to one another by blood or marriage, most of whom had also apparently separated from their families. Jesus called his disciples away from their households. Which is, makes it all the more ironic that the white American church has become an institution supposedly organizing itself around protecting the household and reinforcing gender roles within the household. Here's what I want you to understand. The language of protecting children 
that we hear, for example, in transgender debates. The language of protecting the family. The language of maintaining the traditional family. Traditional quotes. This language has a long American history, not only of organizing the family around men, but also organizing the family around white men. This is not neutral language. This is not even a neutral philosophy of gender. This is very particularly a white male notion of the family that we work with in our language and then we read it back onto the Bible as if it's something that God gave us. But we have to see that even Jesus in his day is undermining those notions of the family. How much more would he be doing that in our day? The American church has used and continues to use family language to reinforce white, straight, male status quo. And according to Luke, Jesus is calling people away from all of that. Now, the question is, why? Why would Jesus do this if the family is the center of Israelite society, why are Jesus and his disciples in the early church so keen on flouting that structure and those ways of operating in the world? Why does Jesus decenter the biological family and with it fathers and even mothers? Here's the answer, and it's going to seem like it's coming out of left field, but I want you to stay with me because I'm going to explain the logic. Why would Jesus decenter the family? The answer is the resurrection. The answer is the resurrection. Stay with me here. Ancient Jews had a minimal theology of the afterlife. You'll notice, for example, that in the Old Testament, there's no reference to hell. There's no reference to heaven, other than as the place where God lives, certainly not where people go. And by the time we get to the New Testament, I think we misread some of those passages that we think are about heaven and hell, though there's a little more about it than in the Old Testament, but it's still not the central idea. So ancient Jews had a minimalist understanding of the afterlife. So how did one live on after life? Through your children. They emphasize that one lives on after death through children. This is why having children was so central to most ancient societies, especially including Israelite society. And if having children is so central, then that means that men, and especially women, men and especially women's lives are oriented around raising children. In fact, stable families are then thus given religious significance. 
Okay? So all of this is orient, all of this centrality of the family in the ancient world, in the ancient Jewish world, is centered on the idea that you live on through your progeny. However, here is where Christianity disrupts it. Christians believed that Jesus has resurrected from the dead. More than that, Christians believed that we will all resurrect too. This means that life after death is no longer a matter of stable families and passing on your DNA and your values and your religion and your ethics to your children. It means that life after death is not a matter of gender roles that reinforce a stable family, becoming fathers and mothers. It also decentralizes children, which reorients particularly women's identities away from motherhood. The idea that women should not be reduced to uteruses is not a contemporary feminist fad. It is the implications of Jesus' decentering of the family through living on through the resurrection. The idea in the ancient world of singleness would have been absurd in that scenario. The idea that somebody would choose not to have children would be absurd. But once the resurrection comes along, once you don't need stable families, you don't have to become parents, you don't have to centralize children in your life, women are liberated from being mothers. Motherhood is great, hear me say, but motherhood is not the only way to be a good woman. The resurrection decentralizes all of that and women and women's identity can shift. If a woman and really men's identities are not tied to raising children, then stable biological families are no longer the center of Christian identity. Rather, all of this redefines family not around biology, but by belief in the resurrection or how Jesus says it here, by hearing God's word and obeying God's will. The resurrection reorients everything. And if that makes you feel uncomfortable, because, I mean, I, it makes me feel uncomfortable. This is not natural for me to think this way either. If that makes you feel uncomfortable, just know that you're in good company because the ancient Romans were really uncomfortable with this too. They were, I assure you, they were not putting Christians to death merely because the Christians worshipped a different God. All the people the Romans conquered worshipped a different God. The Romans just were able to sweep that up into their pantheon. Why did they hate the Christians so much? There were a few reasons. One, they didn't want to worship or bow before Caesar. 
But two, the Romans saw Christianity as a subversive philosophy that undermined everything from gender roles to family structures to political agendas. Instead of, the, 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 instead of being the institutional cornerstone of the society, Christianity was seen by the Romans as a radical element undermining family and reorienting family around hearing God's word and doing God's will. Now let's be honest, that sounds really overwhelming. The implications of this are massive. And it sounds, it sounds overwhelming. We struggle to welcome visitors when they come in on Sunday morning. How are we going to make family out of each other? Right? How are we supposed to make family? Some of you, you might be here for the first time or you here just for the last couple of weeks. This church is actually uh, two churches that have come together recently. How are we supposed to make family? These are two United Methodist congregations, and yet the work of bringing them together into one family is not done, and we've been working on it for a year. How are we supposed to do that when, frankly, we don't have the time or energy for it? And I think the answer is there. If we're going to become family of choice for each other, we're going to have to commit to being less busy and less distracted. It is going to take a very countercultural approach to prioritizing our time and our energy and our money to make genuine family out of each other and out of two congregations. And frankly, that's exhausting. I was telling my Tuesday night sacred conversation group this story recently. But I was listening to a podcast where there was a queer woman, a lesbian woman being interviewed. And she had become a Christian in a very conservative evangelical church. And as you can imagine, the conservative evangelical church said to her, we believe that what you're doing is sin. And so if you're going to belong to us, we need you to not participate in that sin. Quote, sin, right? Now, I want you to hear me say before I tell the rest of this story that I think that church is wrong. I think they should have affirmed her. But I needed you to know that background to understand the rest of the story. So the conservative church says, we need you to live a life of sexual faithfulness. And a life of sexual faithfulness means to our conservative setting that you do not have a queer relationship with another woman. She is converted in this church and she agrees. She says, I agree. I want to belong to your church. I commit myself to following Jesus in the way that your church teaches we should follow Jesus. 
So she commits herself to lifelong celibacy and singleness as taught by her church. And to their credit, to the church's credit, they asked her, how can we support you in your commitment to celibacy and singleness? Now, I'm going to tell you, even asking the question is already head and shoulders above what a lot of churches would have done. So she said she thought about it for a moment, and this is what she said. She said, you have asked me to give up a life of love and physical touch, of partnership and potentially children. In a world centered on the nuclear family, I will never have one. So I need you to be my family, to be the family that I know I will never have. She said they did not respond to her immediately, but after a couple of weeks, the elders of the church came back to her and they said, we cannot promise you that. They said, the people in our congregation are so busy with their own families that we cannot guarantee you that you can be a part of theirs. So here they are, as many churches tend to do, asking other people to make all of the sacrifices to be family, but are unwilling to make the sacrifice themselves. This is simply a matter of carving out time and space inviting someone to come join your family, your biological family, as you do other just normal things. Because here's the reality. If the church is going to move beyond just family rhetoric and actually make family, then that means we're obligated to each other. When I was 13 years old, my grandmother died and I did not have clothing to wear to her funeral. And so Joanne Perry had a son that was my age. She didn't have money to buy me clothing to wear to my grandmother's funeral, so she had me come over to her house, and she put me in her son's clothing, and he was short and stumpy, and I was tall and skinny, and it didn't fit right, but you know what? And every time I raised my, my, my hands like my Shirt came up too far, and it wasn't perfect. But it was love. And that's what family of choice is. It's our obligations to care for and take care of one another, albeit imperfectly, it communicated that I mattered to her as her sons mattered to her, that my grief mattered to her. My friends, Jesus said that his family are the ones who hear God's word and do God's will. And I think this dismantles the centrality of the biological family in our society, but at the least, in the very least, in our churches. 
And I think what I want to call you today to in this Mother's Day is to begin asking questions how you are going to intentionally make family of choice with the people in your church. Here's the unique reality we have. Not only do we have two churches that have come together, but in the last 10 months since we uh, on the Bluff City side came to this building, probably a quarter of you are brand new to this congregation since then or around then. And over half of you are brand new to this congregation since last January when we started up in the pandemic a year and a half ago. After the pandemic, a year and a half ago. So what the unique situation here is, I planted a church five years ago and I feel like I'm planting a church again. And that's great. Because that means while you may feel self-conscious talking to somebody because you don't know them, guess what? They don't know you either, and all of you are new. Older friends, wiser friends, there are young people in this congregation who live hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away from their biological family. They don't have a mother with them to celebrate with them today. They don't have a father who can attend their things and celebrate their accomplishments on a week-in and week-out basis. Some of, them, they, some of them have children, and their grandparents live hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away. And guess what? You, as the older, wiser group, you have an opportunity to make family of choice. And younger folks, you have an opportunity as well. You have an opportunity to share your life and to get wisdom from and to provide energy behind the older folks in this congregation. We are called to be family of choice. When was the last time you said hi to a new visitor? We are not going to be able to make family if we can't do that. When was the last time we invited somebody else from the congregation that we didn't know to lunch to get to know them? Oh, Tom, you're an extrovert. It's easy for you. I don't know. Maybe. But it's still intentional. Jesus said his family is made up of hearing the word of God and obeying the will of God. Theoretically, assuming I'm doing my job, we're hearing the, the word of God on Sunday mornings. Now it's time for us to start doing the will of God by making family of choice out of each other.